Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Where music touches spirit is the motto of the Atlanta Master Chorale. The ensemble will perform two concerts this weekend at Dunwoody United Methodist Church with Georgia's own world-renowned mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton as guest artist. She'll join us with Dr. Eric Nelson, the artistic director of the Chorale, to discuss their thoughtful program later this hour. First, Beloved children's books come to life in the new exhibit at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. Storyland, a trip through childhood favorites, highlights seven children's books in an immersive exhibition on view now through May 30th. Karen Kelly is Director of Exhibits and Education at the Children's Museum. She joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Oh, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Lois. This show sounds wonderful. Will you give us an overview? You know, it is wonderful. We are installing it this week, so I get to have the sneak previews because it's nice to be the director of exhibits. And it is fabulous. It is such an exciting journey through these children's book favorites. It's immersive, it's fun, and even more importantly, the underlying learning and messages under are terrific. It's all about kids learning about reading and language and building those skills. And in addition to that, what would you say is the primary educational focus of the exhibit? It really is about those skills. The primary focus is to help parents understand how they can support their kids' reading and language growth. So every exhibit has interactive elements between parent and child. There's also a separate exhibit that just talks about how parents can support it. Or parents are adult caregivers. I don't mean to be exclusive because families come in all sizes and shapes. Families come to the museum in all different ways. So 
it is just great for everybody to know how to support children's language and literacy, especially as they move into school. Yeah. I see that the experiences range for ages birth to eight years old. Yes. How do each of the sections cater to the different age groups? Well, for littles, there's a lot of things you can do. You can sit and listen to mom read a board book or mom or dad or whoever you're with read a board book. There is a toddler space always for kids, smaller children to engage in when you're little. For older children, there's lots of fun and engaging role play in the exhibit where you can actually crawl into Peter Rabbit's tree and be in his house with his bed and read a story to your sister, brother, and sister rabbits. Or for the book of Snowy Day, you can walk in the snow, not real snow, obviously, and feel your feet crunch. So you get that wonderful experience. And I think actually adults are going to have a really good time in this exhibit. There's places to build snowmen. There's, I don't know about your children, but Chicka Chicka Boom Boom, which is an alphabet book, was one of my children's favorites. And I must have read it at least 9,000 times, <laughs> maybe some slight exaggeration there, but there's this wonderful tree where you match a capital letter to a lowercase letter, and then the letters go up the tree and at the top, they come tumbling down, Oh, just wow. like in the book. Wow. Who chose these seven children's books? The exhibit was developed by the Minnesota Children's Museum, which has a whole business arm of developing these traveling exhibits. So they worked with experts from local libraries, from library associations to pick these books. They wanted them to be wonderful and diverse, but they also are diverse in different ways. Like there's a wonderful book in there called Tuesday, which has very, very few words. So each page allows the adult and child to kind of interpret what is happening and kind of create their own stories. It's very fun. It's all about these frogs flying through their town on lily pads in the middle of the night. Karen, how did a concern for diversity inform the books chosen? They were careful to choose authors from different cultural backgrounds. The Snowy Day is one of the very first and one of the most popular, I think, still um, written by an African-American author, Ezra Jack Keats. And then Abuela is written by a Hispanic author. So they really were trying to make sure they were a diverse set of books from different traditions. It is also an exhibit that comes in Spanish and English, so which is very typical of our traveling exhibits. The two primary languages are usually English and Spanish. And does the abuela section help teach children Spanish? The book does. And yes, the section actually does teach certain words that are in the book, also in Spanish and English. So the kids can pick up both. And what I loved about the book as well, so I think it came out a little after my children were young in that early reading stage, is that they have Spanish language in the book, but sometimes they don't interpret it for you. They let you try and figure it out from context, which I thought it was just a very interesting choice, not to assume people didn't know, but to how give them kind of context clues as to what these words might mean. Yeah. From what I understand, that's also 
a great way to learn another language. Just as we learn language as babies, we don't necessarily know the meanings. No, but the context clues and the things around it. So you're exactly right. And that's one of the things the exhibit talks about a little is helping your children understand and learn that new words by figuring out how they fit into the sentence. Yeah. You mentioned the section in which caretakers and parents read to children. Why was this especially important to include? I think because, as I mentioned earlier, they are trying to educate adult caregivers and parents and others how to support your child's reading. And one of the best ways to do that is to read with them. It is always exciting to me how we have little reading nooks already around the museum, how frequently I find parents reading to their children in the museum, sitting on a beanbag chair or something and reading aloud. So this exhibit just provides those opportunities where you can sit and read and talk about a book. And then you're surrounded by the story while you're reading. So how fun is that? to be surrounded about the story you're reading about. It's very special, as is the act of sharing a book, a story itself. I remember just our fascination, my husband and I, with our children as babies being wrapped in a simple board book. But our realization that holding them closely was uh, enabling them to equate reading books with love and physical affection and nurturing, and, and they just all combine. That's exactly right. The whole thing all goes together. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Karen Kelly, Director of Exhibits and Education at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. Their new exhibition is Storyland, a trip through childhood favorites. You mentioned a few of the activities that will surround these books can you tell us a bit about each of the seven books and any of the museum's surrounding activities we didn't hear about? So I mentioned already about Peter Rabbit, where you have Peter Rabbit's house you can go get to, but there is also Mr. McGregor's garden and the shed where Peter stole the vegetables from. So you can also arrange the vegetables, do it, and you can harvest the crop using can, little canvas bags, just like in the pictures in the book. Um, I mentioned the snowy day, which is, for those of you who haven't read the book, a child's exploration of his neighborhood after it has snowed. So you, like I mentioned, you can walk along Peter's footprints. Peter is the little boy in the book. And then you can build snowmen using giant felt shapes and also give the snowman a face, you know, and arms and a different hat and different outfits. And you can arrange snowflake tiles printed with different descriptive words. So they'll have images on them, but you're also moving them around and learning about these descriptive words and learning how adjectives are so important in our language. Something when my son was younger, he goes, I don't know why I have to describe it. 
<laughs> um, and then of course I mentioned Chicka Chicka Boom Boom with the giant tree where the letters go up. And it also has some wonderful tactile giant letters like in the book. And then there's an ABC beach where you can dip the paintbrush into a water-filled well and write letters or words on a rock surface. And there's a coconut jam cove where you can beat out rhythms with steel drums. This is another area that will really appeal to younger kids because they can they have instant gratification by banging on the steel drums. <laughs> and some of us older folks as well who just love steel drum and reggae and island music. Yes, exactly. And then Abuela has a giant statue of liberty, like the head and the arm holding the torch. And kids can get behind it and look through the windows, the windows at the very top of her crown, just like they're in New York City, looking at from the top of the Statue of Liberty there. In this exhibit, it is important to look up because when you look up in the Abuela exhibit, Abuela takes her granddaughter Rosalba on this imaginary journey where they are flying over New York City. And so if you look up, you can see Abuela and Rosalba flying above your head, surrounded by clouds. Being in New York, there's a tourist telescope to look through photo views of New York. And you can design your own park using magnetic pieces to range things. After that one, um, if you give a mouse a cookie, perennial childhood favorite. <laughs> this is another great reading space with kids, but also has a fun interactive where you help to design your own cookie recipe. And you can choose between real things to put cookies and maybe not so real things like trains to put in your cookies. Again, I mentioned about looking up. If you look up, you'll see a giant yellow straw popping out of the top of the recipe section. And then in Tuesday, the book I mentioned earlier about the frogs, there's a giant clock tower in the book. So you can see the clock tower, you can open the doors to trace the numbers. So again, this is a lot about language. So in literacy, so there's lots of numbers and letters that you can feel and touch and move. So you see them, but you also have tactile experiences with them, kind of appealing to different learning styles from the children. And there's a living room, like the scene in the book, where if you look out the living room window, there are the frogs flying by. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to go visit the frog swamp that they have escaped from on these lily pad leaves and play some more percussion instruments to create swamp sounds. My favorite thing at the end of the book, there's sort of a surprise at the end of the book, which probably I'm not giving away to your listeners, but at the end of the book, it's the next night and pigs are now flying through this town. <laughs> Oh, if pigs could fly. Pigs <laughs> could fly, exactly. And it sounds like they will be at the Children's Museum of they will Atlanta. Be flying. And the last book is Where is Spot, which is filled with like lift the flap. You can read books from the series, not just the first book, but the whole series of books. And I mentioned about tracing the engraved letters, and then you can open doors and find visual surprises. When I reread the book, it had been a minute, I was surprised at how many exciting creatures were in this house when they were looking for Spot. There was a bear, there was an alligator, there was a giant snake. And if I had been Spot's mom and looking for him, I might've done a little screaming along the way as I was looking for my child. Yeah, and I've repressed all those memories <laughs> from when I read that yes. book to our kids. And then there is a flip the tile section where you can recreate different pictures from the books. And the last thing I want to mention again for adult caregivers, 
wanting to know that sort of importantly about how they can support it. There is a literacy panel that talks about how literacy really begins at birth, and it has audio clips demonstrating how adults can support pre-reading and reading skills with even the youngest children down to babies. Oh, that's fantastic. It's a very, very rich exhibit. I am very excited. It sounds so. On January 30th, there will be a special performance by the Atlanta Chinese Dance Company. Yes. So we are so fortunate. We have a wonderful series called Celebrate, where we celebrate different holidays for all the amazing groups of people who live in Atlanta. So the Atlanta Chinese Dance Company is helping us to celebrate Chinese New Year that day. And they will be here in the morning and in the afternoon and doing one performance at each time. So I really encourage you. They're amazing performers. And we are so excited in this difficult time of COVID, to be glad to have guest performers back in the building. Speaking of COVID, what are your protocols? Oh, we have, we are very, very careful. So we have the museum open for two sessions each day. The numbers are limited to safe numbers for the museum. All of our guests ages two and up are required to wear masks when they visit us. If you forget your mask, we have masks available to sell. One of the reasons we have two sessions is we clean the place thoroughly before we open in the morning and before we reopen in the afternoon. So everything gets taken care of and sprayed. So we really work hard to ensure that our guests and our staff are safe. Great. And finally, Karen, what can you tell us about the fairy tale weekend at the end of February? Oh, this is one of my favorite weekends. We're going to have a lot of fun because fairy tales from all different cultures are great and exciting things to share with kids and help them learn and create maybe their own fairy tales. So we're going to do some fun Mad Lib fairy tale creation on our stage. We are going to create your own dragon for your fairy tale in the art studio. And Upstairs, we have some more fun at our science bar and our innovation station. Innovation station is a design engineering space where kids can design and use some of the materials we supply to create their designs. So we are going to be designing something to help the three little pigs keep their houses from falling down <laughs> up at innovation station. Even the one who builds his house out of straw. <laughs> oh, okay. And I take it those hammers will not be made of metal and wood. No, the hammers are not made of metal wood. We use a lot of glue sticks and rubber bands and string, lots of different things to connect and build our inventions. And the children are so creative. I cannot tell you. They have come up with the most amazing designs up in Innovation Station. Karen Kelly, Director of Exhibits and Education at the Children's Museum of Atlanta. Storyland, a trip through childhood favorites, is on view now through May 30th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, We'll visit with mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton and Dr. Eric Nelson, Artistic Director of the Atlanta Master Chorale. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Where music touches spirit is the motto of the Atlanta Master Chorale. The ensemble will perform two concerts this weekend at Dunwoody United Methodist Church with the world-renowned mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton as guest soloist. She joins us now via Zoom with the artistic director of the Atlanta Master Chorale, Dr. Eric Nelson. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be here. This concert has music that touches a spirit of reflection throughout. Eric, would you tell us about the selections? The pieces that the choir is singing on actually all come from the first half of the 20th century. One of the most beautiful pieces ever written, I think, in the entire repertoire is the Durafle Requiem, and we will be singing that. One of the movements of the Requiem is composed for a mezzo-soprano soloist. And <laughs> of course, if you can imagine the way that this might be sung by the greatest mezzo that there is, you would imagine that maybe Jamie Barton would be singing it. And I asked her if she would be able to do it. And to my delight, she said, yes. The part of the story that makes it more complicated is that this was a year ago. Oh, This concert was supposed to take place during last season, which of course for all of us around the world was canceled because of the pandemic. And so I was heart sick to lose this opportunity and we were managed to work out this other date for it. Jamie, do you have any details to fill in about that? It was heartbreaking on my side of things too. I love this work in particular. When I was at Shorter College, we toured it through Eastern Europe. <laughs> I have quite literally recorded the PAA Zoo along with the Dura Requiem in 
Paris in the church that Duraflay wrote it in, you know, with the organ that he wrote it for, you know, so it's, um, it's a piece that's really, really near and dear to my heart. But of course, I understood when we needed to at least postpone it in October of uh, 2020 and to move it to another place. And gosh, I'm just so excited that we've found another uh, area in the schedule for this to, to live. So Lois, what happened then is once Jamie was, uh, had agreed to sing the P.A. Yezu from the Duraflay Requiem, then it seemed just a shame <laughs> to have her on the concert and to have her only sing that one movement. So then we began thinking about what other pieces she might sing, and that's where the rest of the program came from. Hmm. Well, I have to say, Jamie, you gave me Goosebumps listening to you speak about singing the Durufle Requiem in the church where he was organist. And with that organ he played at, keeping with the motto of the Atlanta Master Chorale and music that touches spirit, would you tell us your reason for? including the other works you will perform on these concerts. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, <laughs> the Atlanta Master Chorale is just one of my favorite choirs. I find myself an incredibly lucky woman to be living in the city where this organization is based. To be able to go and, and hear them live is, is just such a joy the others, gosh, the, the idea of getting to program more, whether it be the five mystical songs, which of course Eric was the one to suggest. And uh, I had done Love, Bad, Me, Welcome, the, the middle movement of that one. When I was a choir ringer in Rome, Georgia, the, the choir leader just loved the five mystical songs. So he assigned one song per ringer basically for First Baptist Church of Rome and that was my song and I just fell in love with it so when Eric suggested that I was like yes 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 you know it's it's not really a, a piece that mezzos do it is it is quite literally written for baritone solo chorus and orchestra or organ or piano or any variation of uh, accompaniment but baritone solo being really the the operative word you know so that's my range yeah okay. <laughs> you know what that's my range during a pandemic sometimes <laughs> <laughs> but the five mystical songs I'm just so excited to get to sing these with that choir and then the three pieces that we programmed other than that Eric the, the task at hand was really let's let's showcase a little taster, like a little tapas portion of other things that you do. And the three pieces that came to me that we ended up programming, Greeting by Bernstein from his Arias and Barcaroles, Songs My Mother Taught Me from Dvorak's Gypsy Songs, and Vardate Drem, the wonderful Sibelius song. Thank you. 
these are, to me, this, this little group is just a beautiful bridge between the two. And it really is a reflection on human experience, the, the reflection of the birth of children and how precious and incredible that is to start. And then the reflection of, in my mind, the, this child is growing up and has experienced learning these songs that their, their mother has taught them. And the pride of getting to pass this music along to the next generation. And then something a little out of left field, but the experience of, you know, what was our love a dream? You know, was, was this all a dream? Am I reflecting back on a relationship that maybe has not gone the way that the singer wanted it to? songs that are near and dear to me which is such a pleasure to be able to not only get on stage and sing them in front of the audience but I'm gonna be very honest right now I'm if I have any nerves whatsoever it's just the idea of singing these in front of the choir these these incredible musicians you know just it's the first day of rehearsal jitters that's all it is (laughs) Jamie your humility it's astonishing in light of your achievements, but I imagine that the Atlanta Master Chorale does not anticipate you're letting them down in any way. <laughs> you're very kind. Thank you. <laughs> I know that you've recorded these works, All Who Wander. You took us through that recording, and it's stunning. I remember when the album was released, you spoke about the challenges of singing in the Czech and Finnish languages. I guess you have aced both of those by now. (laughs) Well, I I wouldn't say that I have certainly aced them. But I had just incredible help on these, gosh, the linguistic coaches that I've been so lucky to work with have just prepared me so well. In fact, I when I did uh, Yijibaba, uh, which is a role that I do in Ruzalka at the Met and then later at San Francisco Opera and coming up actually this next year in the Czech Republic, which is also daunting, but the, the response that I've gotten back from Czech speakers has been just very, very, very good. And I just have to give all of that credit to the Czech speakers who, who taught me how to, to do these. And uh, 
the Swedish specialist on Vardatindurum. It's it's funny with Sibelius. Some of them are in Swedish and some of them are in Finnish. And luckily for me, this one was in Swedish because Swedish is a lot easier than Finnish. A little bit closer <laughs> to German. Finnish, from what I have been told by everybody who has run into the language, is one of the hardest languages to learn. But it's a challenge that maybe I'll, I'll seek out in the future. And because I, I like the challenge of learning how to effectively storytell in languages that I don't speak fluently. It's like a, my little opera singer trick pony. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Can I come into your country and tell you a story and you forget that I'm American? Great. I'm doing my job. Oh. That's kind of where I come from. <laughs> if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton and Dr. Eric Nelson, the artistic director of the Atlanta Master Chorale. They'll perform this weekend at Dunwoody United Methodist Church. Well, Eric, I was hoping you might take us through the Durofle Requiem. It's sort of a a guide to what makes it great. I mean, Durofle was this outstanding organist and composer. He was highly respected as a professor at the Paris Conservatory, but he only published 11 works, most of which are sacred. The Requiem is his most famous piece, what makes it great? It was composed in 1947 and actually exists in three forms, all, all of which are genuinely by Durafle, sanctioned by Durafle. It is done sometimes with just the organ as the accompaniment, sometimes with full orchestra. And in the version that we are doing, it's organ doing the majority of the heavy lifting, but supplemented by a chamber orchestra of strings harp, timpani, and believe it or not, three trumpets. And part of what makes the piece extraordinary is its kind of luminous quality. There's a holiness about it, a, a, a mysticalness about it, which may be one of the things that made me think about pairing it with the mystical songs. stands out most about it is that every single movement is based on Gregorian chant. And Durfle seemed to have a great love of chant and a, quite a bit of his music is chant based. And so I can only imagine what it would have been like in the time that it was written when the audience would have all known Gregorian chants really well and how wonderful it would have been to hear the harmonies that Durafle pairs with those melodies. We don't know those melodies as well anymore, but nonetheless, there is, there is something about the way the Gregorian chant 
it makes us feel it has a timeless quality to it, I think. And those melodies with the almost impressionistic Debussy-like harmonies that Durafle finds, he was a professor of harmony and composition at Paris Conservatory. It's just, it's just one of my very favorite works of music. And I'm just delighted to be able to present that to an audience again. I read that you chose to dedicate the performance of this piece to those who lost their lives to mm -hmm. COVID-19. Yes, it's all of us, I think, involved in the arts have this feeling of wanting to do something that is healing and acknowledges the time that we are in. And so d doing this beautiful piece and dedicating the performance seemed to be the right thing to do. And I hope that the people who hear it do find some measure of, of comfort and solace in it. Jamie, did you have anything to add about the dedication to those who died from COVID? Only that I actually didn't know that until this moment. Eric, forgive me if you've told me <laughs> and I've forgotten, but that truly means quite a bit. Having lost some very dear people to me in the last couple of years, that, that brings this to a, a new level of special. Uh, which it was already for me at a very high level of special. I think I did tell you, Eric, that I, during the pandemic, I, I just, I was heartbroken at the loss of normalcy, the loss of jobs, the loss of my voice, you know, and I say loss of my voice, but I mean, it, that was really, that was due to heartbreak <laughs> and the, the, the loss of the, the pull to classical music. It was, it was too painful. I couldn't even listen to it. Hmm. And the first murmurings of coming back to that normalcy, coming back to connecting to classical music, I quite literally dreamt <laughs> of actually, I, I had dreams where I was literally lying in Schwartz Hall, listening to the Atlanta Master Chorale rehearse the Duraflay Requiem, vividly, vividly. Choral music in particular has always been something incredibly dear to me. And being in that sound and being a part of that sound is something akin to uh, a spiritual experience for me. And <laughs> the excitement I have about this actually happening, <laughs> you know, about joining in rehearsal and being able to be on stage during the performances is already a level that I have truly been looking forward to for the last two years. But to know that in some parts I get to honor my stepdad who died from COVID or any of my other family members who have suffered so greatly is just another level of honor and beauty. And Eric, I thank you. Thank you for an incredibly timely and meaningful dedication in this concert. I think that's, it's going to touch a lot of people. Mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton and Dr. Eric Nelson, the artistic director of the Atlanta Master Chorale. They'll perform Maurice Durufle's Requiem, five mystical songs by Rayfon Williams, and Jamie Barton will be featured in several solo works this weekend, January 21st and 22nd, at 
Dunwood United Methodist Church. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, a listen back to my conversation with the Grammy Award-winning album art designer Lawrence Azarat. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. How do visual art and design contribute to our relationship with music? Well, a virtual exhibition at MOTA, the Museum of Design Atlanta, explores just that. The Future Happened is co-curated by the Grammy Award-winning album art designer Lawrence Azarat. When the artist joined me via Zoom last April, he first explained the title of the show. Music, or I should back up and say the music industry, has historically been at the forefront of changes in culture, from politics or cultural movements, and also commerce. The exhibit is really driven looking at how we can use design and art and creativity to deepen the connections that bond us. Getting back to the title, there's always been groundbreakers in music in our history and now and in our future. And we need to pay attention to those innovations to be able to have deeper and more meaningful connections to music, culture, and each other. So cover art. That's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of how art and design can strengthen our bond to music. When people shopped for LPs, I mean, part of the joy of thumbing through record albums in a shop was looking at the cover art. And some of that was very sophisticated. Now, with streaming music, what's happened to cover art? As someone in my own practice as a designer, I began over 20 years ago designing cover art at some major record labels, indie record labels. And it's no surprise everybody started noticing that cover art got smaller and smaller and less and less significant. And the exhibit and the ideas in the exhibit beg the question, what are some of the other entry points through design and creativity that connect us to music? So we wanted to be completely diverse in our definition of this. Yes, we have album covers and traditional graphic design and collage, but we also have dance and film and video and clothing and technological innovation that includes spatial audio and AR and VR and even acts of meditation and entering kind of a sensorial healing space. The idea of expanding our idea of what the word design means to intentional acts of creativity that have a connection to the visual. Ah, I mentioned that you won a Grammy that was for a Wilco 
design you did. Do you just cherish that all the more and cling to that box because <laughs> it it may now be a historic artifact? <laughs> Truth be told, it's actually our second Grammy. Our first Grammy was for the Voyager Golden Record about four years ago. After the Voyager Record Grammy, nothing really changes. You 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 don't. Uh, I still put my pants on in the same way, and that's really what the title of the exhibit ties back to. That we we always have to keep moving forward, and we always have to be looking for deep questions our culture faces and find new ways to connect to the things that make us human. You mentioned healing. The show's organized into five different categories. Healing, power, community, tech, timeless, and Atlanta. Would you elaborate on these categories and tell us why this show is divided this way? We're living in a time where traditional classifications of genre tend to pay attention to our divisions more than the way we are connected. Rather than looking at these classifications, we wanted to look at the way elements of music are connected. Many of these artists share commonalities in these categories. We wanted to look at important functions of music to celebrate and uplift now and today. And, and that's the power of music to build community and to bring us together. And as far as categories like technology, it was important not just to be two senior citizens sitting on a bench saying, remember when the albums were hit in record stores? That was, that was so great. But it's important to consistently look forward. We live in an era where we access music through streaming, and that's an incredible invention and utility. But how can we use technical innovation to really excite the mind and inspire and, and tell deeper stories and have deeper creative experiences? And we also felt that Atlanta, Atlanta has had a massive cultural impact. And it's important to celebrate and share that story. Beyond just looking at hip hop alone, we celebrate this spirit, this creative spirit that has come up from Atlanta, but shared elsewhere as well of creative iconoclasts figuring out how to do it themselves. You know, we don't need permission from the big gatekeepers in New York or Los Angeles or Hollywood or London that with grit and determination and agency and inspiration, you can do what you want creatively. And Atlanta has given root to a lot of that type of spirit and you see it in a lot of the cultural iconoclasts that have come from Atlanta. Sajad, one of the exhibitors, won a Grammy for his work with Burna Boy. You also won for graphic design for Wilco's Ode to Joy album, as we mentioned. Is there any more to say about how the Grammy Awards recognition of visual artists and designers in such a category as best boxed, affirm the relationship between art and music. Graphic design, film and video are a literal extension of the music. It's really wonderful that excellence in that area is, is honored and celebrated. When you listen to a song, there's no physical vessel to it. It's this kind of auditory experience that kind of happens in, in time. But 
the package, the video, the costume that's worn on the stage during the performance, these are the physical extensions of what the art is. It's these kind of visual touch points that give the listener this point of tangibility to identify and connect. As part of this exhibition, audiences are invited on a sonic and walkthrough experience of the original home and studio of Atlanta's Dungeon Family. Would you talk about the Dungeon Family and their influence not only on Southern hip-hop, but music and culture overall? Absolutely. The Dungeon Family, one of their largest contributions to hip-hop is a sense of a spirit and an attitude. This dungeon, so to speak, was the basement of the home of Rico Wade's mother. After being forced out of an apartment in Southwest Atlanta because of noise complaints, and that's what came to be known as the famed dungeon, which, of course, the organized noise family, parental advisory, outcast, cool breeze, goody mob, joy, backbone, witch doctor, big rube, and ultimately the likes of Killer Mike and Future. We decided to look at the house itself as the work of art, as design lab. So there's a digital walkthrough that the exhibit is all online. And the viewer, the visitor, can kind of walk through the house and hear unique interviews created just for this exhibit with Sleepy Brown and Ray Murray and Rico Wade talking about the original days in the house. And then we had this kind of sonic landscape, what it might've been like to be in the house. So as you, as you walk through the blueprint, you hear sounds and, and textures that paint a picture mixed with the stories. Lawrence, you cite historical and ongoing challenges the music industry faces regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. How has design contributed to these challenges? There was a very honest stretching of what the definition of design was and a consistent question of who we celebrate and why. Design is, is a vehicle to understand culture and to experience culture that does not and should not be defined by a white European standard. We have in the exhibit, Lemmy Garaku, who created the album covers for the Nigerian great Fela Kuti. Having a more vibrant mosaic and texture of our stories and our graphic design and our creative output enriches everybody. Yes. The exhibition includes a few different interactive components, including zine workshops for adults and children. Would you talk about the history and importance of zine culture? First of all, we wanted to give a access point for young adults and creatively curious people. And zines were basically handmade magazines had a real big start in the early punk movements, which we have some great examples from the late 1970s, early 80s, from the origins of the punk scene in Detroit. It was a way for people to identify with each other. Not only you're not alone, but social issues or personal issues are shared with others in your community. It was nice because the zine itself had a very raw, 
and tactile and emphatic sensibility to its look and feel. But it was it was meant to be made down and dirty and cut by hand and xeroxed and reproduced by hand. And, and they were these kind of very precious little artifacts, honest artifacts, authentic artifacts made by hand in this particular zine room or workshop of the online exhibit. We highlight two exceptional zine makers today, young 16-year-old designers behind a publication called That's Interesting. And it's about sharing ideas and emotions and feeling. And on its most fundamental, that, that's what design is. Lawrence Azarad, co-curator of the virtual exhibition The Future Happened at the Museum of Design Atlanta, MODA. You can view the show on MODA's website, and more information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Kitty Murray, founder and CEO of Refuge Coffee, tells us about their new Midtown location, now open at the Woodruff Arts Center. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE at last. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.